0: And now, coming to you live to tape from the Derek Duvall Production Bunker, it's Derek Duvall!
1: Hello, Duvall Nation. Hello! Hey, everybody. Hi. Thank you so much. Please, everyone, sit. Thank you. Hello, Duvall Nation, and welcome to the Derek Duvall Show. (laughs) We are back with another fantastic journey into the lives of extraordinary people. This episode is brought to you today by the fine folks at BetterHelp. BetterHelp is the world's largest therapy service and it's 100% online. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Show. That's better, hel Derek slash Show. So before we jump into this episode, I want to say a massive thank you to my last guests, Anna Maria Pinna and Dave Sussman of the rock band Vajra. This was a great interview and they were a lot of fun to get to know. If you have not heard our very in-depth interview, I strongly advise you to check it out after the conclusion of this episode. So welcome to episode 222, and we have a really special episode lined up for you today. We have on the show Dr. Nicole Colon. Now, Dr. Colon is a research astrophysicist at NASA working out of the Goddard Space Flight Center. She'll be discussing how she got into the study and search for exoplanets, working for NASA, working with the James Webb Space Telescope and several other projects and so much more. Lots to discuss. So let's get her out here. Duval Nation, please welcome to the show calling in today from Annapolis, Maryland, Dr. Nicole Colon. <laughs> Dr. Colon, hello. Welcome to the Dark Duval Show. How is the weather out by you today?
2: It's actually quite chilly. <laughs> So I think it's our goal to stay here this fall so far.
1: So with the pandemic now winding down, how was it for you to navigate the COVID-19 world?
2: You know, it, it was pretty interesting for me because my life kind of turned upside down. Back in 2020, I had so much travel planned. I mean, that's our job. A lot of times we go to science conferences, you know, science outreach, public outreach, all these things. I typically travel at least once a month. And so March, 2020, literally came to a halt, <laughs> everything. I, I didn't know what to do. I, so I spent a couple months just recovering from the slower pace, if you will. And now, you know, I, things have picked up again. So I am back to almost full speed, but I think, you know, the whole pandemic did demonstrate that. Yes. In reality, I do need to slow down and be more conscientious of my time and, you know, just be aware of what's going on and, and not just be on the go all the time. Cause sometimes you need to breathe, right. Right. And you need time um, to, to stop and think and, you know, plan and and all that, all that fun stuff. So yeah, it's been, it's been interesting. Fair
1: Mm -hmm. enough. So every journey has a beginning. Where were you born and what was it like to grow up there?
2: Mm. So actually, I was born in California, but I grew up in New Jersey. Mm. So, uh, yeah, my dad was in the Air Force. So we moved around a little bit when I was young. But then he retired when I was around uh, seven or eight. And that's we were in New Jersey at the time. So that's where I stayed the rest of, you know, growing up and into college as well. So I am a Jersey girl at heart. <laughs> I always will be. I love the Northeast. I love the Four Seasons. I am a huge fan of the NFL. So, I, and I am a huge Philadelphia Eagles fan. So, all of that comes from you know growing up in in South uh, New Jersey, actually. And yeah, it, right. it was a great experience.
1: Right. What were your earliest career aspirations?
2: Actually, the earliest I remember at. 12 years old. And I even told one of my best friends who I'm still friends with today. I said at 12 years old, I'm going to work at NASA <laughs> and lo and behold, I did <laughs> it all worked out. So she has me on record <laughs> and cause we even filled out a, um, Oh, what's it called? Like a time capsule a right. thing, like a, like a sheet of paper, a pamphlet that Described, yeah, exactly what, you know, all the all the things we liked and, and everything. And I found in some ways I haven't changed very much since I was twelve. So I'm very consistent. I still love the same things. Um I'm just, you know, obviously hopefully more mature now.
1: Right. Favorite <laughs> memories from your time at the College of New Jersey?
2: Oh, I mean, I probably just so I say I lived in the dorms on campus. And um, your freshman year, you are assigned a random roommate. So, you know, you never know what it's gonna be like, right? <laughs> and my roommate was a girl named Ashley. And it was just honestly amazing how much we clicked. And that's my favorite part is because we ended up clicking and, and becoming, you know, friends such that we stayed living together, like we chose to live together after that every year. And to this day, we are still really great friends. So I am so grateful for that opportunity that, you know, just by sheer luck, um, we got a great, great crew of friends to come out of the college. So that's one of my favorite aspects is just literally the lifelong friendships now that that we're able to come out of that.
1: Nice. Talk about, you know, you decided to get your master's and your doctorate at the University of Florida, correct? That's right. How long did it take you to do that?
2: it took about 5 years in total so 2 years for the masters and then another 3 years to get the doctorate that was slightly i mean it's it's the normal duration i would say <laughs> but yeah. like 5 or 6 years is typical to do the full doctorate and it, i was of of the mode of you know i'm going to apply for jobs at the end of You know, or in my fifth year, and if I don't get a job, then I'll take another year in grad school, basically. But Mm -hmm. luckily, I I was offered, you know, one job, and that's all you needed. (laughs) Right.
1: Uh, talk about your time at the University of Hawaii.
2: Yeah. uh, So that was the one job I was offered at a coming out of grad school, and um, you know, so I was very grateful for the opportunity because my it, it basically allowed me to extend my dissertation work in a new way. So, you know, being a scientist by training, we learn certain things in in school and, you know, we, I use certain telescopes, I use certain wavelengths of light to to study planets. But then in Hawaii, my advisor gave me the opportunity to learn new telescopes I hadn't used before and look at new wavelengths of light I hadn't looked at before. So it was like a perfect segue to grow, you know, keep growing um, as a professional astronomer. And, you know, being in Hawaii, like living there itself is interesting for me. I I knew it was temporary, first of all, because these postdoctorate research positions are often like two to three years anyway, but it was definitely hard living so far away from family because most of my family is on the east coast again so you know five six hour time difference you know I call my mom when it was lunchtime for me we talk it was dinner time for her (laughs) and and so I don't know it was really cool living there but I was also happy that it was only temporary right (laughs) yeah so
1: you talked about it earlier your dream job what brought you to NASA
2: You know, so I had, after I worked at the University of Hawaii, I had another postdoc position at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania. And again, this is kind of the norm where after grad school, people do like one to two postdoctoral research positions and then look for a permanent job. And that a lot of people become professors or that's their path that they want to go down and, you know, do research, have students, um, but also teach and all that. And I wasn't exactly sure if I wanted to do that. That was like the common path, <laughs> but um, I I was just very open. And so when I was working at Lehigh, my advisor there, he luckily encouraged me to look at all kinds of things. And, you know, I, I did a lot of like public outreach, supported like museum events. Um, I actually taught a class while I was at Lehigh too. To remind myself if i like teaching or not <laughs> and i i also did a a meeting that nasa invited me to that it was basically to review grant proposals so people propose submit these like multi-page proposals to to get grant money and do scientific research and I, so i was doing all these things right and i was like what is the most exciting to me or, or all that. And I found, again, the NASA part was most interesting to me because it was like seeing behind the scenes, like how do we enable science to happen? You know? And I was like, okay, that really interests me. Like, I like doing science too, but I really liked enabling science and being like supportive in that way. So, um, the short version is that I was at this NASA meeting and I mentioned to someone running it, I was like, Oh, I really enjoy this. You know, thanks for inviting me. Right. And he said, Oh, well, we're actually hiring. <laughs> and I said, Oh, well, I wasn't technically on the job market yet because I was in the middle of that, my time at Lehigh. And I was like, Oh, that's interesting. Um, maybe I'll consider. And then I ended up talking to my advisor. I ended up applying, flew out for an interview. And literally after the interview, I drove, actually drove to Panera Bread (laughs) to get dinner after the interview. By the time I drove and got to Panera, I had a job offer in my inbox to work at NASA. I was like, okay, this is amazing. (laughs) Um, So that that was pretty cool. And that was actually at NASA Ames Research Center. So I worked at two different NASA centers so far. And that was, yeah, my first foray (laughs) into officially working at NASA.
1: Nice. Now you are currently a research astrophysicist at the NASA Goddard space flight center in Maryland. Mm -hmm. For my listeners, what is your main focus of research and what teams do you work with?
2: Mm. Yeah, my main focus has remained unchanged since grad school. So I study exoplanets. So exoplanets are just literally planets outside of our solar system. So anything that doesn't orbit around the sun, (laughs) that's a planet. That's my my area of focus, and what we do is I work with um, people to help find new ones, you know, planets that we hadn't yet discovered, but also study their atmospheres, learn what they're made of, learn what types of clouds they have, things like that. So that's the main focus of research, and that's um, stayed true over the years. And then now, so so since I've been at at Goddard um, since 2017, I've worked on a few different space missions. And currently I actually work on three different mission teams. One of them is the NASA TESS mission. That's where most of my time is spent right now. It's the TESS is an acronym. It stands for the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite. So it finds new exoplanets out there, but it also studies basically anything that goes bump in the night, if you will, because <laughs> all it, it's doing just like a survey. It's staring at space. Measuring the brightness of objects and seeing how they change over time, that's basically what it's doing. And it's been doing this for five years and, and, you know, and it's ongoing. So that's where a good chunk of my time goes to work on that mission. Um, But I also support the NASA James Webb Space Telescope Project, which was NASA's biggest observatory we ever launched um, back in 2021. And it's doing incredible science now. I work on a mission in development that hasn't even launched yet. Um, And it's a much smaller mission called um, Pandora. And it's what we call a small satellite. So it's literally like physically small (laughs) also. And um, it's kind of designed to be small, relatively cheap, and have like a very focused science goal. And that's also studying exoplanets and their atmospheres, um, which hopefully it'll launch in like 2025. So it's coming up soon, yeah.
1: Why are exoplanets so fascinating to scientists?
2: So for me, at least, you know, I can't speak for all scientists, but I hope it's the same reason. Um, But for me, at least it's really about understanding Our place in the universe, which, you know, may sound a little, I don't know if corny is the right word, (laughs) but, you know, I, because you think about like our solar system, you know, we have a bunch of planets, comets, asteroids, um, all kinds of things. But as far as we know, we only have life here on earth, right? On one single planet. Now we know of over 5,500 other planets out there, exoplanets. And, you know, we want to know what they're like. And so far, what we're finding is that many of them are nothing like the planets in our solar system. Like, they're either much hotter, they're larger, they're much colder. Some of them are even smaller. They're just very different than anything we have. And so now that we're learning that, it's it's just like, okay, literally, again, how does Earth fit into the grand scheme? You know, are we are we rare essentially is our entire solar system rare is our architecture rare you know we have four small planets and four giant planets like why is that um when we're finding all kinds of other planets out there that are just yeah very different so it's kind of understanding not so much why we're here but like literally how how are we here <laughs> if that if that makes sense you know it's a subtle distinction right right
1: Um, How are exoplanets typically found?
2: Mm. Yeah, one of the the main ways is um, actually through this method called the transit method. And so all that really is, is that we look at stars, you know, we measure their brightness over time. And um, what we do is we look for the starlight to dim and to dim periodically. So every few days, every few months, every few years, it dims on the same time scale. And that indicates that there's a planet passing in front of the star, blocking light at regular intervals. And that is um, the transit method. We can detect these planets passing, you know, in in front of their star blocking light. And oftentimes this is, this change in brightness we're measuring is like a 1% or less. So it's very small, but we have really sensitive, you know, detectors in space that can see these small changes and you know, we can measure that, um, with our, with our telescopes basically. So that's found the majority of the exoplanets known so far, and it will continue to be the dominant way. We find exoplanets for a while, actually.
1: Hmm. Mm -hmm. How do factors like, you know, the type of star and planetary composition influence the habitability of a exoplanet?
2: Mm. Yeah. You know, we, mentioned, right. Earth, could it be rare (laughs) and, that depends on well the answer depends on again the type of star like we have a very specific star well it's the sun um but you know it has a very specific temperature um it there are solar flares um but they're not it's not very they're not very energetic or, or super active you know they're not we're not getting bombarded with like extreme flares all the time so therefore we can retain our atmosphere you know because sometimes or a lot of times I should say there are these stars that exist out there that are different than the sun and either they're smaller or cooler or much hotter. And a lot of them can be more active. So they emit more radiation that hits the planet that orbits them. And then that radiation can, you know, carve away the atmosphere and make it not sustainable if, if there is an atmosphere at all around those planets. So That's a big uh, field of study is, okay, yeah, how do these stars affect their planets so that we can determine if they're potentially habitable? Because these radiation environments can just be extremely different. So the sun is relatively quiet, um, relatively well-behaved, we say, (laughs) (laughs) which is good for us here on Earth. But we find that a lot of stars out there are not (laughs) well-behaved. It makes it trickier, for Hmm. sure.
1: One of the interesting questions, you know, uh, that I wanted to ask you, you know, and this is, you know, can you explain this for my listeners, the impact of discovering exoplanets on our understanding of the universe and the possibility of extraterrestrial life?
2: Yeah, with exoplanets, we right now we're kind of in a we're in an interesting time because we found over fifty five hundred. Um, which sounds like a lot but there are billions of stars out there so there's likely billions of planets out there so we are far from you know discovering all of the planets known but what we have found so far just by where we've looked is that we know that planets are extremely common we know that there are billions out there we haven't discovered yet so we're in a good position because we know planets are everywhere basically and so in that sense, we can extrapolate and say, okay, if planets are literally everywhere around all types of stars, including around hopefully you know these well-behaved Sun-like stars, um, that means that there's some estimate of planets out there that could be Earth size, you know, are in the right orbit to have the right temperature, with liquid water, which is what we think we need to support life. At least as life as we know it right <laughs> and so there's all these number games that, that we can play to extrapolate and say okay based on what we know today you know these are the odds that such a planet like earth could exist um it's not super high to be fair even with when you consider everything we know uh but at the same time because there's so many stars out there um there's got to be you know, have planets out there, but so, so we can do the numbers game, but then the, the tricky part is, you know, how do we actually study those planets and like look for potential signs of life. Right. And this is a field that's kind of really just picking up heavily now. I mean, there's been the search for extraterrestrial intelligence SETI for a while. That's had different ways of trying to find signs of extraterrestrial life, you know, detecting radio signals, things like that, or other types of signals. Um, But yeah, there's a whole new field called technosignatures that we're really starting to get going to say, okay, what are ways that we can plausibly, you know, in our lifetime with or with current or upcoming telescopes, look for signals of intelligent life out there? Because again, we could find life. But is it intelligent life? You know, that's also an open question. Could we find microbial life, bacterial life? You know, that's sure. But is that what we will we will we be satisfied enough if that's all we find? You know, do right. we want to find aliens? Right? I don't know. I, I don't know the answer to that. <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, I had uh, Dr. Pascal Lee on the show. This the who was the director of the Mars Institute. And he was mm. talking about his equation and what have you about the odds of finding extraterrestrial life in this thing. And I was, it, it made for an interesting discussion on the show. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. What is the closest exoplanet that has been found in proximity to our own planet?
2: Oh, the closest one. There is this star system. Well, it's the Alpha Centauri system and there's, but it's a multiple star system. So a lot of stars are born with, siblings essentially so our sun is solo only only star we have but anyway this alpha centauri star has a sibling called proxima centauri and it's a much smaller cooler star than the sun yeah there's planets around that star the catch is that we've actually discovered those planets not using the the main transit method that has found the most planets but it was using a different method which is just as um, efficient as finding planets, but it means we don't know the exact size of those planets, basically. We know that there's planets there. We can um, have an estimate of their mass, but we don't know their radius. Uh, So in any case, we know they're there, (laughs) but it's, it's just that we are a little more limited on the information we have about them.
1: Which brings me to the next question. And that's, you know, what challenges and limitations astronomers face when studying exoplanets and and how are you working to overcome them?
2: Mm. Yeah. Well, the hard part about trying to find, you know, small things in space, is that they're small, like literally, right. Um, We're not studying like these giant, like massive galaxies that people look at that have billions of stars. We're looking for, you know, one tiny planet around one little star, and maybe it's really far away. So so a challenge is just literal faintness of these objects. So we know there's planets everywhere, like I mentioned, uh, but the problem is the further a star away is uh, typically, and well, the most common types of star and the further away they are, they are just basically very faint. <laughs> and so We have telescopes that have gotten more powerful over time to study these fainter stars, because basically you need to have measurements. There's always noise in your measurements just because no instrument is literally perfect. There's always some type of noise, some types of uncertainty in your measurements that you're making from, from whatever you're looking at. And so even as our instruments and our telescopes improve, That means we can push fainter and fainter, but there's still limiting, like there's still limit (laughs) what you can push to. So that just means that we can kind of, well, what we're focusing on right now really are like the closest planets to us and everything, but maybe, maybe there's not, you know, an earth twin very close to us. So again, we can extrapolate, but that's you know a huge limitation, right? Extrapolation, we wanna have direct detections when we can. So we're still looking obviously all the time. And one way that we are looking to prove things is NASA is just kicking off the Habitable Worlds Observatory. So that, so the James Webb Space Telescope launched in 2021 and that's considered like a big NASA flagship mission. The Habitable Worlds Observatory will be—it's the next next flagship because there's something else in between <laughs> called the Nancy Grace Roman Space Telescope. But the Habitable Worlds um, Observatory, one of the key goals is to look for Earth twins, you know, around Sun-like stars. But it's doing that actually by directly imaging them. So again, a totally different detection method. We're hopeful that that will, you know, lead to again with enough technological advances lead to a detection of earth twins, you know, that we can again, kind of tackle to, to see, okay, what do we see in the atmospheres? Right. <laughs> and, and is it anything like earth? So is it really a twin or not? But that's a big technological hurdle, the direct imaging part. We have like the transit method kind of down pat. <laughs> and mm-hmm. So um, direct imaging is just, it's a lot harder to block light from a blaring bright star to see a super tiny faint, you know, Earth slice
1: planet around it. Okay, Devall Nation, we are going to go ahead and take a small break right here, but we will be right back with the conclusion of this interview with Dr. Nicole Cologne. Miss, just take this time to refresh that drink and take some super long deep breaths. You know that's right. Caluso style.
2: Out with the bad air, in with the good. Out with the bad air, in with the good.
1: Pay attention to a few friends of my show, and we will be right back.
3: Hello, Duval Nation. Derek Duval here. Mental health is not only a top priority in my life, but it should be in yours, too. As a combat military veteran, I have seen what untreated mental health looks like, which is why I've been using a therapist for well over a decade. Seeing a trusted therapist has helped me reconcile life events and other important things I've been witness to since returning home from the service and has changed my life for the better in many ways. Which is why, going forward, I am pleased to announce that BetterHelp will be sponsoring the Derek DeBall show. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professionalism and quality you can expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you. More scheduling flexibility and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at betterhelp.com slash Derek DeVall Show. That's better H E L P dot slash Derek Duvall Show.
0: Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well now there is. Introducing podcasting made easy from podcasting audio my production team will handle your entire audio production allowing you to be the star of your show this is podcasting made easy how easy well so easy you don't even have to press record now that's easy your listeners are waiting let's deliver sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy
2: Hey, it's Michelle Fabre, and you're listening to The Derek Duval Show. You can hear my brand new single, I'm All That I Need, on
0: all streaming platforms right now.
2: I'm all that I need to get by. Yes, I'm all that I want. i tell you why.
3: Teachers,
1: do you ever have these feelings or have been told these things?
0: Do you want Kleenex for your classroom? Maybe you should think about buying your own, with your own money. You get the summer off, you can have a second job. Do you really need a pay raise? Oh, do you need to use the restroom? Maybe you can do that in the three minutes while students are changing classes. Boy, sure hope your room doesn't descend into Lord of the Flies in that time. Oh, things are going pretty good for one. Surprise! Budget Cuts!
3: Well, you're in luck because we've got a book just for you.
0: Hi, everyone. It's Katie Kinder, educator, speaker, and author
2: of Untold Teaching Truths. I invite you to purchase my book and join this journey as we talk about the wild world of public education. Part memoir, part strategy. It is available on BookBaby, Amazon, or wherever books are sold. Teach
0: on, warriors. We've got this.
3: This is Benjamin Sledge, author of Where Cowards Go to Die. In my award-winning memoir, you'll discover the raw humanity, intricate complexity, and brutal barbarity of those who served in the Iraq and Afghan wars, and the psychological toll it took on modern veterans. You can purchase Where Cowards Go to Die on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or anywhere major books are sold. Look for me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Benjamin C. Sledge. Hey there, this is Chad from Larkin and you are listening to the Derek Duval
1: show. You can find all of our releases on No records out of Long Beach. that's KNOW. or you can find them on almost all streaming services and we hope to see you around down the next gig. Cheers. And his comrades, like lions at bay, from South Dublin Union poor death and dismay. But what was there? Often in the invaders then saw all the dead khaki soldiers in Erin go brah
2: You can find Perfectly Flawed on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or wherever books are sold.
1: Welcome back to episode 222 of The Derek Duvall Show. Let's get right back to it with the conclusion of our interview with NASA research astrophysicist, Dr. Nicole Colon. You mentioned just briefly, what is it like to work with James Webb and Mm. to look at exoplanets more closely? And what do you think of the telescope and what it's been able to do so far?
2: you know, yeah, this telescope has, it's, it's exceeded expectations, which sounds silly because it, you know, it was designed to be amazing, <laughs> but I didn't appreciate how good it would work kind of out of the box. <laughs> it had, so after it launched, there was a six month commissioning period to basically get the telescope all set up to do science. And since then, I mean, it's been like a year and a half that it's really been like gung ho, you know, science operations And it's already produced so much science, not just for exoplanets, of course, but, you know, all kinds of literally everything in astronomy. And I feel like every single data set, it's something, you know, like a brand new result that we'd never been able to see before this telescope launched or existed. And that's because it's, it's performing exceptionally well, which really means it's basically more sensitive than you know we predicted or you know we required it to reach certain sensitivities when it was being built but it's just performing beautifully it's you know very stable which means we can get really high quality like precise data really uh just burrow down and detect super small signals so for exoplanets what what that has meant so far is we've been able to have like a lot of first detections of things that we had predicted, but we didn't have the technology to detect before. And so um one a couple examples, carbon dioxide is something that we detected in an exoplanet atmosphere that was basically hinted at for many years. But yeah, we've been able to make like the first definitive detection with JWST. And it was a beautiful booming signal basically. Um, there's also um, methane is another one that we've long predicted to be in these exoplanet atmospheres, but we've not been able to secure a detection for you know one reason or another. And now we finally had you know, detections of methane. And we're studying clouds, which is super interesting because you know, clouds and exoplanets, like we have clouds on Earth, there's clouds on, on every planet in the solar system, basically but we're finding really unique clouds because these exoplanets they have like, they have different temperatures and and pressures and you can have clouds that you never even thought of before <laughs> and, and so sometimes we see things in the data and we're like, what the heck is that? And so we have to go back to our models. Like we don't actually predict everything. We The data reveals new things all the time essentially. And then we say, okay, wait, let's pause, go back to models that we have that exists. Where, what is going on? oh, that matches this, you know, element or molecule or whatever. And so we've been able to find literal quartz clouds recently. <laughs> and so that's something that's just like, you're like, wait, isn't quartz, you know, rock? Like, <laughs> But again, these pressures and temperatures are so unique that we find like little like quartz crystals are in the atmosphere of, of an exoplanet. So that's just another really cool thing, you know, and, and the list goes on. That's not everything, <laughs> but right that is like where we're at with this telescope is literally every data set is showing us something new that, um, is, is just kind of rewriting textbooks essentially every day.
1: (laughs) You know, it's funny that Flickr page that, uh, James Webb has is a staple on my bookmarks on my computer, this computer that we're talking on right now. And every day I go on there to see if a new picture has been uploaded and the, photo quality but that can't That telescope makes those Mm -hmm. photographs are just i mean stunning i mean yeah it's like art
2: right (laughs) it is
1: it is i mean your background is is one of those photographs i mean uh, yeah the pillars of creation i recognize that photograph anywhere so yeah yeah it's yeah
2: i i know i'm literally um even so my my family um Or my dad's super into the telescope as well. And so my mom said, oh, what can we get him as for like a Christmas gift, you know, that relates to the telescope. And so we're thinking of, yeah, some of these posters because they're like art, you know, and and printing out these images. And they're so high resolution because the we built, you know, these incredible high resolution instruments. Firstly, information is stunning, like because they're not just beautiful, but they're chock full of information about. Whatever objects being looked at, you know, you're seeing right. fine structure and clouds of gas and dust. Yeah, where stars are right. forming or galaxies, and yeah. So I agree. It's like <laughs> I can't even keep up with it all at this point, to be yeah. honest. You know, because there's like I said, it's not just new science every day, but like yeah. new images on top of that, and yeah. yeah, I'm way behind in updating my my you know wallpapers.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um. Moving on, you know, what role do citizen scientists play in exoplanet research and how can the public get involved and stay informed during developments and discoveries?
2: Hmm. Yeah, that's a great question because so citizen scientists, this is a great question to answer because there are so many ways that that NASA has for you to get involved, you being anybody (laughs) to get involved in studying exoplanets, especially. And so one of the main ways is called the Planet Hunters Portal. And it's a it's basically a program within the Zooniverse that is a place where you can go log in and literally just look at data from tests. For example, the mission I work on, you look at measurements of stars, but all you do is like literally mark places where you see dips in brightness. And there's a whole really cool, like training set, like training information guide, you know, tutorials, all that, that are available. So people can dig through and actually find new planets. And people have, have contributed to major discoveries before this way, because, or when we look at all these stars, we often do it in an automated way, you know, with, computer like algorithms and things, but no pipeline is perfect. So yeah, so so basically those pipelines that we have are incomplete. they're they're, you know, they're very complementary because there's like different data pipelines. And so that's why citizen science with eyeballs on data <laughs> adds another complementary angle. So that's one way you can get involved. but also there's other things like, exoplanet watch is something where people can be involved. That is especially if you have your own telescope. And if you're in your backyard, you can literally look and study exoplanets. People do this all the time. They contribute real data, you know, from their backyard telescopes to NASA. And then that data comes in handy for studying planets to study like their orbits and their sizes and all these things. And so anybody, yeah, again, with any type of telescope can contribute to that. So that's a really cool program uh, called Exoplanet Watch. And yeah, those are two of the main ones, but honestly there's even more than that. And that also is just focused on exoplanets as I mentioned, but there's other citizen science projects out there for sure that people could look into that are just really cool ways to be involved.
1: You mentioned it briefly earlier. You, I was the question was basically, you know, like you know, upcoming missions for NASA to, scu- to study exoplanets. But you mentioned Pandora. Can you mm-hmm. talk about Pandora a little bit?
2: Sure. Yeah, Pandora is it's what we call a small sat. I think I mentioned that earlier. So it's a small satellite, and it's part of this new NASA program called Pioneers. And basically, these are small missions designed to be developed and launched and do science like within a five to six year time frame. So like kind of relatively quickly in the grand scheme of things. And with Pandora, um, it's designed to launch in early 2025 and last for about a year. And what it's going to do is do a survey of like 20 exoplanets, and it's going to study them at two different wavelengths of light. So visible light that we can see, you know, with our own eyes and then infrared light as well. That is kind of like heat, you know, thermal emission and the way that, or why we're doing that, I should say, is because we are basically trying to study the star and the planet at the same time. And so we want to study like how the star Uh, Evolves like we assume it has spots on its surface, like our sun has star spots that rotate in and out of view or form. Um, The sun also has flares, and the stars we're looking at have flares like emitting energy. And so, we want to study that in the visible light, and then simultaneously in this infrared light, we're looking at the planet to look for water in its atmosphere. And we want to see how. The star affects our measurement of the water basically because it's all like entangled (laughs) essentially and we have with pandora the unique ability to not just get like simultaneous wavelengths like this but we're also doing like long duration observations so staring at a star and a planet for like 24 hours straight and then doing that 10 times (laughs) so we're getting like long baseline data, you know, we get incredible data from again, the James Love space telescope, but often we'll get like just centered around what we call this transit event. We'll get like five hours of data or something. (laughs) That's it. And then you're done. (laughs) So because the telescope is, you know, it's very, very heavy use. It's not just for exoplanets, Um, but for Pandora, it's only for exoplanets. So we can enable these, uh, long time baseline that um, you can't really get with any other telescope and it's from space. So you get, you know, the, the boost by being above, you know, earth's atmosphere as much as possible and getting CRISPR data that way.
1: Right. Next question, you know, Pierre de Coupetan said the most important thing in life is not the triumph, but the struggle. You get a chance to talk to your younger self. What would you say to her?
2: Ooh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I would say I was never, you know, looking back at like college, you know, after and everything, I I was never the one to get the highest grades, the best grades, you know, I felt like nothing really came easy to me. Like I had to study harder. You know, I wasn't necessarily a natural of physics <laughs> or or astronomy research um, or programming or, you know, all the things that we we had to do in college and grad school, um, I wasn't a natural at it. And so, (laughs) yeah, that was definitely always a struggle because I, you always feel like you're quite, you know, you're not quite good enough. Right. And you're like, Oh, should I rethink my whole life plans? You know, should I be doing something else? And so, yeah. So if I talk to my younger self, I mean, I don't, I almost don't know if I want to spoil the fact that I did make it to NASA eventually, you Mm -hmm. know? (laughs) But I would definitely say kind of, you know, just you gotta like, uh, what's the word? Like you do you, you know, like keep, keep doing what you're doing because like, there's always going to be also, you know, haters who come along and don't think you're good enough either. Right. And it's like, just ignore them, like just focus on, you know, yourself and like, stay true to yourself. I guess that's what I'm trying to say, because, um, that will get you where you want to be eventually, right? And so it's okay to get bad grades, you know, at times, or, you know, if somebody says something negative to you, just like brush it off because it's your life, right? You know, it's, so however much work you wanna put in to commit and, and, you know, persevere essentially, it doesn't matter if somebody says something negative to you, they're not gonna interfere with your perseverance. So like, just keep doing that thing because yeah, it's it, the struggle, you know, was real <laughs> at times <laughs> and yeah. So if I could give myself moral support basically, cause yeah, there's definitely hard times when, you know, you're studying physics. <laughs> mm-hmm.
1: So what's next for Dr. Cologne?
2: Oh, what's next? Um, yeah, I mean, I mentioned, so I mentioned I've, I've been at Goddard since 2017 and I work on three missions now. Um, among other things, uh, as far as I know, you know, I have no intention of leaving NASA or Goddard. Um, and, but the cool thing about being where I am is that there's always new NASA missions launching or in development or different projects that come up. So it's it's interesting to think about, yeah, what is next? Because a lot of space missions, they last a while, but they don't last forever either, right? right. So I mentioned down the road, There's this Habitable Worlds Observatory that is really just starting. It's not even in development phase officially yet, but um, there's just starting to be like working groups forming to study, you know, science cases for it and all that. That's starting now. Yeah, I, I think it'd be really cool to work on that mission, you know kind of soon. Right now my plate's full <laughs> but mm-hmm. but once you know I I roll off some of these other projects perhaps you know once they're completed um it would be really cool to work on that you know from kind of close to the beginning of that process because I've I've worked on different missions at different stages of their life cycles what we say and you know I joined the James Webb Space Telescope a couple years before launch I've been with the Pandora team since we first proposed the mission to NASA so and then I joined tests right after launch. So like I've seen you know a little bit of everything but I haven't seen like a huge flagship from like inception basically. <laughs> so I think that'd be really cool to work on that and you know still stick with my my whole exoplanet you know theme if you will. <laughs> nice. Yeah. As
1: we're into the final phase of the interview, I always like to ask one fun question, Dr. Colon, what do you like to do for fun? How do you like to relax?
2: Mm. Well, I mentioned I'm a huge uh, Philadelphia Eagles fan, <laughs> so I definitely enjoy watching football for fun, although it's often stressful. <laughs> so uh, Seeing if, if a team's going to win or lose that week. So many close games this season in particular, it's been mm. a little stressful. <laughs> Actually this I don't know if this is a nerdy um, stereotypical answer, but um, I like video games and I've always liked video games actually since, again, as far as I can remember. And, but in particular, um, I like playing World of Warcraft and I've been playing that since 2010 off and on. (laughs) So... Yeah, I've been playing it quite a quite a while and um next year is actually the 20th anniversary of the game which is crazy to me. <laughs> so, um I think it's fine to like immerse myself in other worlds like that because it kind of relates back to like just a general love of science fiction and fantasy and you know, living in another world where maybe there are planets like in these games, you know. <laughs> It literally all somehow connects back to exoplanets, so it's probably why I study exoplanets. (laughs) Nice.
1: Uh, What would be the best way for my listeners to follow your adventures, follow your research
2: online? Oh yeah, I so I have a I technically have a Twitter account. I guess it's called X now. (laughs) Um, So uh, yeah, I am there. At my handle is at Supernova, but there's a K in there. Because my my first name has the silent K, <laughs> so it's very clever. I know if you just Google me, I have NASA profiles that um have this information that um yeah you can follow me, and I get um tagged on things on um mostly um X, although Instagram maybe become more of a thing. I mean NASA has a big presence on Instagram, but um I mostly used um yeah Twitter for astronomy related things. <laughs> okay.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. I could I could talk about this for you for hours, but unfortunately I have to wrap this up. Uh, I am my interviews with my favorite question. Mm-hmm. And the question is this, if the entire planet was listening to this broadcast, what would be the one thing you would like to say to the people of Earth?
2: This may seem somewhat philosophical. I'm not sure. <laughs> but I would say don't give up hope. Like, literally anything you're doing, like, I think about this a lot. Hope is a very powerful thing. You know, some people hope to change the world. Some people hope to just get through the day. They hope to win the lottery. They hope to get that job they apply to, whatever, right? Hope is very unifying. And so it's kind of like, it means you're never alone. Because you know there's always somebody out there hoping alongside you about something, even if you don't know them, you know. And so... I think hope is very, um, strong and empowering and unifying. And it's like, you know, I hope one day we do discover, you know, intelligent life out there. And, and, you know, I guess we'll live to see that and see the impact on humanity, for example. Um, it's really fascinating to me that the kinds of things that, that people can hope for, maybe with enough, you know, Uh, unification, like hopes become realities. So it's kind of, I don't know if that's philosophical answer, but it's something I think about. Yeah. (laughs)
0: All
1: right. Dr. Colon, this has been a real honor for me. Thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on the show, share your knowledge with me and my listeners. Please, please, please come back on the show again. An open invitation. You are welcome back on the show anytime. Okay.
2: Yeah. Thank you so much. I appreciate it.
1: And just like that, Devall Nation, we come to the end of episode 222. I want to thank Dr. Cologne for coming on the show and taking time out of her very busy schedule to speak with me. I have a great relationship with NASA, and I've got some very special guests lined up for you in the coming months. Okay, tuning in next time as we showcase another extraordinary person. We drop our episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, so be sure to keep checking your favorite podcast streaming channel for those episodes to drop. Also, I think it's fair to ask you, the listener, have you enjoyed this episode? I truly hope you have, so please go and hit that subscribe button to keep up today for when new episodes drop. Also, if you're feeling generous, drop us a review. We love reading what our listeners have to say about us, good or bad. We are still enjoying our partnership with the amazing T-Public. The Derek Duvall Show is a great little store on there. We have everything with our logo on it, including magnets, stickers, and mugs. Plus, we have some really fun t-shirts on there that Mrs. Duvall and I added ourselves. So please go to our website, DerekDuvallShow.com, go to the banner to merch, click that, and you'll be taken to our store on T-Public. And once again, I want to thank them for being such great partners with the show. On behalf of myself and the entire team here at the Derek Duvall Show, I want to say to each and every one of you listening, my gym journey is coming along Great. Just had my first max-out day, and I am starting to feel stronger again. Still got quite a ways to go before I start seeing some definition, but I look forward to showing off my new body to the world. Nos God bless,
0: and see you next time. Planet Earth. This has been a recording of The Derek Duvall Show, and we thank you for listening. Please go to our website. DerekDuvallShow.com for links to merchandise and to explore past episodes. Please find us on social media on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Derek Duvall Show.